Hello, everybody. Glenn here with yet another call to action. And first, I just want to thank everyone who participated in our review drive earlier this year. That was a huge help. Eldersign actually shows up on some searches now. So thank you so much for that. But ultimately, we would like to be more than just searchable. And in fact, we would like to be personally introduced to people who like reading and watching the same things that we like reading and watching here at the network. And so I am back to ask you to share our podcasts on social media. Of course, we're going to incentivize that. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, But first, I want to talk about what would be most helpful to us. Uh, Number one, and, and really the easiest and most obvious thing, is telling your friends and followers on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram about our shows and especially what you like about them and why you think they might as well. But also, there are loads of communities on Facebook and Reddit that are dedicated to the genres and authors and shows that we cover on the network. Now, we certainly do not want people spamming those groups, but if you are a member and a contributor of a group like that, we would love for you to let other people in those groups know about our shows. And I guess Goodreads is a place this could be done as well, but I just don't know very much about that. But if you do, we would be really excited to find people there as well. And so, like last time, we're going to give away three prizes to people who share our shows or or just generally promote us on social media over the next two months. Uh, Top prize, of course, is a free bonus episode on a story or, or topic or episode of your choice on any of our shows. And then we're also giving away two free nominations for an upcoming Patreon vote, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter. So this is a chance, really, to get us to cover something that you love that we have rudely been ignoring. Now, we're going to run this bumper here in September, then again in October, and as soon as Brandon's annual scary movie night around Halloween time is over, I'll draw names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat is by sharing us in any of the places I just mentioned. You'll get an entry in the hat for every share or post, uh, but please do not spam people. We're we're trying to bring people into our community, not annoy them after all. Uh, And then you can just let us know by the end of October how many entries you get. You can, I don't know, send us a screenshot. You can just make a list, whatever you would prefer. And you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com, or you can message us on Patreon or Twitter. And by the way, if you have already done this sort of thing, we are obviously going to count that. All of those times are going to get your name in the hat. And thank you so much for doing that as well. There are a number of you who have been doing this all on your own without any incentive for literally years. And we are truly grateful for that. Okay, so if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch probably early November or so. We're, of course, especially excited to work with someone on crafting a special bonus episode. As we say all the time, that is really one of our our favorite things to do. And it, it really is. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are beginning our coverage of Gene Wolfe's novella, Silhouette. This novella was originally published in 1975 in a novella collection called The New Atlantis and Other Novellas of Science Fiction. This had three novellas in it. Uh, Gene Wolfe had this one, Silhouette. Gene Wolfe had uh, Silhouette. There was a novella by James Tiptree Jr. and one by Ursula K. Le Guin. And this was these were packaged together and it was kind of a briefing. What is The New Atlantis? The New Atlantis was a uh, book by Sir Francis Bacon, it was kind of a utopian 
novel. Uh, it wasn't completed in Francis Bacon's lifetime. It was riffed on by Jonathan Swift in Gulliver Travels. Uh, I think Laputa was kind of the place where he did a lot of poking fun at the New Atlantis, but it also has several other connotations. And we're going to talk about that throughout the story and definitely in the discussion episode. But we're going to have to wait to get to some of that. And we should say that we just did Kiwis Laputa's Sum, the, the Gene Wolfe story, Kiwis Laputa's Sum over on Patreon, which which is in a, a similar collection, actually. So Wolf was being commissioned to do a lot of this type of work, this uh, envisioning uh, either a utopia or a dystopia work here in the, the mid-1970s. And that'll be a lot of fun when we get to the discussion. Uh, we should say, of course, that we read this in the Wolf collection, Endangered Species. And hey, this is a big novella. And because it's a big novella, we are going to take multiple episodes to cover it, as we always do. Uh, we're going to do this one at a little bit of a slower pace than we've been accustomed to doing when we do these novellas. And uh, we may end up with some fairly short episodes on this one, but that's all right. This is a story that we really want to savor. It's a very densely packed story. It might be the, the most densely packed story of his that we've done so far. So we're going to take our time with it. We're going to do five recap episodes, followed by a discussion episode. So six episodes total. This episode, it's our first recap, and we're going to cover up to page 457. But before we get going on the recap here, we do have an announcement about a new show on Clay Temple Media. Yeah, a few months ago, I began publishing episodes of ATAS, a speculative fiction book club podcast. This show is just me all by myself talking about entire novels in one single 20-minute episode, uh, about as far from the MO of this show as you can get. I mean, it's literally the exact opposite of how I just explained we're going to go through this novella, right? <laughs> Where we're going to spend like, I don't know, eight hours talking about it or something like that. I've already released episodes on that show uh, on Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, Ursula Le Guin and Isaac Asimov. Uh, later this month, I'm doing The Ale House at the End of the World by Stephen Allred. Uh, this was a book that was recommended to me by one of our Gene Wolfe listeners. And then next month, I'm doing a book by Kate Wilhelm, who actually appears in The Fifth Head of Cerberus. This show has been a lot of fun for me to do so far, and I, I do hope people will check it out. And uh, again, the show is called ATAS, as in A to Z. And uh, I'll try to remember to put a, a link in the show notes, and I appreciate you checking it out. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it's a great way to be introduced to uh, writers you've maybe been trying to get around to and haven't been able to yet. Listening to Glenn kind of critically review these novels will push you in the right direction of the next book you should pick up. It's also a lot of fun, but we have a lot of work to do here today. So, Glenn, let's get started with Silhouette. Yes, a lot of work today. I don't even know if I can take a breath deep enough to to really uh, do even just the the handful of pages that we've got uh, got on the docket for today. Well, it's a Gene Wolfe novella, and so you know what that means: epigram. And this one comes from the Ambrose Bierce short story, A Psychological Shipwreck, which is a story that we've not yet done on Elder Sign, but but it's a story that we we definitely should. And in fact, somehow we have done no Ambrose Spears on Elder Sign yet. That is something that's going to have to change soon. At any rate, here is the passage that Wolf uh, uses to start off this story. It also has a, a quotation from another book, a, a fictional book inside. So there are actually three layers here, but I'll, I'll do my best to sort of signal that here in, in audio only. I glanced at the top of the page. It was a copy of that rare and curious work, Deneker's Meditations, and the lady's index finger rested on this passage. To sundry it is given to be drawn away, and to be apart from this body for a season. For, as concerning rills which would flow across each other, the weaker is borne along by the stronger, 
So there be certain of kin whose paths intersecting, their souls do bear company, the while their bodies go four appointed ways, unknowing. Okay, that was the end of the quotation within the quotation. So here's the rest of what Bierce writes in the frame for that. A hurried tramping sounded on the deck. The captain, summoned from below, joined the first officer. Good God, I heard him exclaim. So, all right, Brandon, uh, you definitely have your work uh, cut out for us here. <laughs> and uh, maybe first actually just tell us about Ambrose Bierce for people who don't know who Ambrose Bierce was. And, and then he can explicate this passage for us. And, and maybe after that, we can muse about what we think Wolf is trying to get us to think about as we get into this story. Yeah, we're going to do an Ambrose Bierce mini episode right now, (laughs) particularly about this story, uh, Psychological Shipwreck. Bierce was a major American writer in the 19th and early 20th century. He wrote a lot of Civil War stories and some of what would come to be called weird tales as well. Today, he's probably most well known for an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge and the an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge and the Devil's Dictionary. Uh, a psychological shipwreck, this story can be found in the 1893 collection, Can Such Things Be? It's a collection of short stories, and a psychological shipwreck is very short, but it's a, it's a good deal of fun. Bierce, we should also know, also invented Carcosa, which is a major inspiration for uh, Chambers' King and Yellow story cycle, which we're already slowly working our way through over to Elder Sign. But I'm going to give a quick summary of a psychological shipwreck here. A psychological shipwreck finds the narrator of the story boarding a ship with a woman, the woman who is reading in this passage we just got, uh, Deniker's Meditations, Uh, a woman and her servant, and they're all going to New York. The man becomes attracted to her and tries to talk to her about his really infatuation. It's kind of a lust because he knows it's not love, but hey, they're on a ship for a couple weeks together. She doesn't really want to speak to him about it. And it's not clear that she wants to talk to him at all. But he sits down next to her. She looks through him. And he reads from her open book uh, this passage from Deniker's Meditations. And not an hour later after doing this, the ship that he's on is wrecked. And the narrator is the only survivor. He wakes up on another ship. And he's with his friend. Uh, a very good friend of his. And he asks this friend about the wrecked ship he was just on and the woman who died on it. The narrator's friend here is also reading Deniker's Meditations. And this book was a gift to him from his secret fiance, who was aboard the other ship, who was the woman aboard the other ship. And he's also reading this same passage. The friend the narrator's friend and this woman plan to elope in new york city so basically what happens here is the narrator discovers that uh this passage in deniker's meditations is really about astral projection and the narrator was able to do this for some reason and he was really living this out-of-body life for three weeks on the other ship while his body went on attending meals and, you know, going through whatever functions it needed to on the ship with his best friends. And then when the two men disembark this ship in New York City, uh, they discovered that the other ship was wrecked and it was never heard from again. So what we're dealing with here is the idea that consciousness can live separately from the body and both can maintain 
themselves apart from one another. And that's mainly what's going on into the in this passage. We'll see how that plays into Silhouette. Uh, it's it's definitely a major part of this story, but I will say I think that in the story there's a, another genre influence on this text that I just suspect was on Wolf's mind, though it's not one that he makes any reference to. That is Stanislaw Lem's Solaris. I think that that is a part of uh, the influence of Silhouette as well. That was a lot, uh, but the bottom line here is... Uh, the consciousness without bodies, astral projection, and uh, weird, strange romances on ships. Man, I'll, I have a lot to say about this, but the first thing I'll say is that I'm, I'm glad you brought up Solaris. I actually, while reading this and then also while working on these episodes, which was like 40 hours of work, <laughs> right. all I did was listen to the Cliff Martinez uh, score to the uh, Soderbergh uh, version of that film on on repeat. It's now like the most played uh, album on my like music player of, of all time because it was so perfect for what this story is. So it'll be fun. We can, we can talk about connections with uh, Solaris at the end. But of course, we have seen before Wolf being very interested in the the ability of consciousness to leave the body and exist on its own and then return to the body. I mean, that is you know the fundamental thing that is going on in a story by John V. Marsh. This story is going to deal with that too. So it's really clear that that's something that Wolf is cluing us into. Uh, but I think the shipwreck is also something that we need to be be thinking about here as we get into it. Well, all right, let's uh, let's get to our story proper now. And I'm actually just going to read the entire first paragraph because it is a masterclass in how to open a speculative fiction story. The bulkheads of the compartment were white panels, not plastic. Johan might have preferred plastic with its memories of Earth, but probably would not have been able to tolerate it as he had these for 17 years. But ice foam, a mixture of five parts water with 95 parts air, the water molecules twisted and locked in such a way that the ice foam remained a glassy solid at temperatures up to 200 degrees Celsius. They were slightly cool to the touch, smelled of chlorine, could be drilled and sawed but not glued, and harbored the flabby rats that sometimes sprang across the compartment at night, caroming off the ceiling like tennis balls and squeaking like bats. The lights were located behind these bulkheads, which diffused their glare into an even, if still somewhat harsh, glow. So I just want to parse this for what we learn about the setting without Wolf actually spelling out a single thing here. Uh, here are the things that we learn. We're not on Earth, but our character is from there. Uh, memories is the key word here. We're in the future, which we know because ice foam isn't real, and being able to use water as a building material is futuristic. This is a, a sort of utopian dream, right? Solving the resource problem. We're on a ship or an airplane, which we know because of the use of the word bulkhead and uh, because uh, Johan has been here for 17 years and he misses Earth, we are probably dealing with a spaceship. And all of that is packed into this opening paragraph that is ostensibly describing a wall. Yeah, exactly. So just like Alien Stones, basically, <laughs> you know, in, in in Alien Stones in this, Wolf is imagining what the practicalities and logistics of really long-term space flight would be. Alien Stones had this real Star Trek-type feel to it. We talked a lot about that in that episode. I think we'll be talking a little bit about Star Trek in, the, in this uh, series as well. But this is more like spaceships as looking after the comfort of its inhabitants on some level rather than kind of the almost brutalist and overly functional aesthetic that Wolf had in mind in Alien Stones. In, in Silhouette's Wolf is 
really wearing his engineer cap in in a extreme way and this story is going to get into some fairly theoretical math and physics stuff later on which we will probably have to leave to our experts on the forums and be uh corrected and (laughs) censured by those who know more than us for spreading misinformation and corrupting the minds of our (laughs) listeners but uh we get the sense in this opening thanks to wolf use of wolf's use of parentheticals you know as a a, a craft trait that he really uh, gets into later on in his writing as you put it out, Glenn, that Earth is a memory for these people, which in the way it's used, in the figure of speech that it's used, really indicates that they've been on this ship for a long time. That that 17 years is how long they've been on the ship, but Earth being a memory feels like they've been on it longer than 17 years. I think that Wolf is doing something with this language. I also really like this bit about the rats. I think Wolf here is engaging with the aesthetic that we now call retro futurism. Uh, and he's doing so at least on the level that this stuff on this ship is of a generation or more old. And he's engaging with that aesthetic on the level that the stuff on this ship is a generation or, or more old, meaning that if these technological developments continued, this sort of ship probably wouldn't be in use. It would be outdated. But it was part of what the makers of the ship were imagining the future would be like. But also, this it gives us this sense that the rats roaming the halls, uh, this lights going out, all of this stuff that you know was once maybe top of the line, was once the imagination of a utopian future, All of these indicators in this opening paragraph mean that something has really gone wrong and things are not as they should be. There is a decay that has kind of taken over the aesthetic of this ship and it's it's not where it needs to be. Right. Going back all the way to the very first story that we ever did, Chip Trap, Brandon, you, you coined something that has become kind of a, a buzzword or a catchphrase for the show, which is, is coffee in space, right? If you've got coffee in space, then you have solved the resource problem. We are actually going to get coffee in space in this story. But something else that we have learned along the way is that at least at right now in the, the early and, and mid-1970s, rats... Rats in the halls. This is a thing for Wolf. This is a shorthand to let us know that something is rotten in the, the, the state of whatever. In this case, it's not Denmark. In this case, it's a spaceship. But something is not right here. And the way that Wolf couches that something is not right is through this kind of intense uh, subjective normalization that this is just the way it is. This is the norm. And this is the technique Wolf uses throughout the story to kind of fool the reader and lull the reader into the sense that uh, because it's the norm, we can just relegate it to the background. And that would be a huge mistake if we continue to read this story, looking at things that are subjectively normal for the crew here and not measure them up against some better ideal or some better objective. And that is a big part of the technique that Wolf is using to hide information throughout this story. 
And we're actually going to get that. That is actually going to be made manifest in the plot of this story uh, near the end. And in fact, I think really kind of exactly at the end. So uh, we will get there in in quite a while. One more thing I, I do want to say about uh, your comments there, Brandon, before we actually get some story going on is that I'm really glad you you brought up the idea of, of retro futurism because I, I hadn't really thought about it. But I think the whole time that I was reading this, I was at least a little bit kind of envisioning the, the, the Ronald D. Moore reimagining of Battlestar Galactica this ship has that same kind of of lived in feel that the Galactica had and, and actually some of the storylines are, uh, are are similar as well so uh, I don't know maybe we'll go start about it so maybe we'll go start a Battlestar Galactica podcast when we're uh, when we're done with this <laughs> perhaps <laughs> yeah I don't think that's actually going to happen well uh, let's actually go get some story here we've had uh, we've had an epigram we've had a description of a wall let's uh, let's get some story now <laughs> so Wolf is not just describing the walls because he thinks ice foam would be a cool thing to have though it would be a cool thing to have, uh, but he's doing this because two of the lights behind the wall are out. Johan calls up maintenance and reports the issue, but according to their monitor, the lights in his compartment are just fine. And I love this bit, by the way, because this sounds fairly digital, right? It's like Wi-Fi light bulbs, basically. But the maintenance worker here that he calls up on the phone still has to get his information about the lights via an actual paper printout. Uh, this is just some great history of the future stuff here. Uh, and also, I think we need to note here that Johan lives in compartment 773. Uh, these are numbers with great significance in Christianity. So uh, I don't know that we're going to get them again, but we should keep that in mind as we go. So Johan heads to the bridge. This is ostensibly to see if something is wrong with the internal monitoring system, since his light situation is not being accurately detected. And on the bridge, we meet Horst and Grit. Uh, so something is going on here with German names. Uh, and in fact, we also learn that this ship is now orbiting a newly discovered planet that they are calling Neuerd Draht, or Neuerd Draht, uh, which means something like New Earth Wire, though that erd there in the middle, that can have some other uses as well. And I imagine, at least in the discussion, if not somewhere in the recap episodes, we're going to end up kind of bouncing around some ideas about what this name actually means. Uh, but I do also want to say that while Horst is definitely a, a very real German male surname, it has not been in use like here in our world for at least two generations. And although Grit sounds German when it's set next to these other German words, Horst and, and Johann, it's not a real word. So it must be short for something or this is maybe a new word, a new German name in Wolf's speculative world here. Uh, and so I think that these names may be a, a clue as well about how far into the future we actually are. But we'll have to see if Wolf is going to help us out with with this by giving us some kind of date or something later on. I mean, probably not. He doesn't usually do that. But, you know, if he doesn't do that, then it will be a lot of fun to try to actually figure it out. Uh, the other thing that is going on here is that Johan wants to make some sort of appointment with Grit when she's done with her shift. But she says that she's got nothing free, and then Johan simply says, the book. And this is a book of signatures that he keeps in his gadget bag. And when he shows her that the last signature is from six weeks ago, uh, Grit says, all right, but maybe wouldn't you like someone else? Maybe the new girl in the galley. Gretchen? I hear she's pretty. But that isn't what Johan wants. And so in the end, she relents, but says that she'll need some time uh, after her shift to, to clean up before she comes over. So... It seems clear enough, right, that Johan is bargaining for some sort of romantic or sexual encounter, but it is not at all clear to me what this business with the book is or why the, the signatures here and this gap of six weeks, why this compels Grit to submit to Johan. But the whole thing feels very weird to me. It fills the story with some real 
discomfort. I mean, and this is just like page two, right? Real discomfort. But at this point in the story, Brandon, I wondered how you reacted to this. What did you think was going on here? At this point in the story, when I first re- was reading it, the the level of discomfort I felt over this, I think Wolf expertly communicates, and it's clear that this is some sort of forced sexual encounter, or at least compelled sexual encounter. There is some expectation or rule on the ship, and we will get more about this later, uh, that there's a rotation of sexual encounters between lower and higher ranks, and it looks like Johan has a duty log to this effect, which is a little uh, gross, but Johan basically returns to the bridge to let Grit know that it's her turn to visit him, which is very, you know, romantic, I guess. <laughs> it's 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 uh it's not gonna get better. I will say the gender dynamics of the story are something that Wolf is doing something with, I think, very purposefully that we're gonna have to really, really take apart in the discussion. But I at this point I also need to point out uh and Mark Aramini has done some real heavy lifting on this story. Uh but I want to point out that all the girls' names that we see in the story, Grit Gretchen, we'll meet a Goethe later. They are all variations of Margaret or Marguerite. Uh, and, and what jumps out to me with these names is that we have a main character named Johan. And then these three women whose names all hover around the name of Faust's love interest in, in Goethe's Faust, uh, the German play. So Wolf is giving multiple people, multiple women here, uh, he the same literary illusion. And I, I don't know. And right now is not a good time to go into what's going on with that, if anything is. But we have to keep that in mind because we have a Johan and we have three Gretchens, basically. So there's something happening with Faust, with names, with uh, identities maybe being split. I'm not quite sure. But we also really see in this section the emergence of Wolf's favorite imagery, which is that of the play between light and shadow. Of course, a silhouette is made from shadows. That is the title of this story. Uh, and shadows are also something that is cast by something blocking light. And as we learn more about the planet, we'll see that this fear of light, this uh, aversion to light is a big part of how life on the planet functions. So let's just keep all of this in mind as well when we're seeing lights going out in Johan's compartment this early in the story. Right. Well, we we are actually going to learn a little bit more about both the ship and about the the planet Neuerdrat in this next section. So let's let's just get to it and, and let's just do the planet first. So Johan asks if the away team is still down there, and, and Grit puts an image up on the screen. It's it's not a two-dimensional image, though. It's a, a three-dimensional image. This is something we keep encountering in Wolf, this idea of a screen that shows three-dimensional images. We have this in The the Hero is Werewolf. We've seen it in a few other places as well. I can never wrap my brain around this, but I don't know. It's something Wolf was in love with here in the, the early and mid-1970s. <laughs> but what we get is an image of an arid forest in which sprawling, angular plants with limbs spiked like the clubs of giants joined silent battle. Uh, A great descriptive line there from Wolf. 
And the deal is this. While plants on Earth are photophilous, uh, meaning that they rather like the sun, uh, here on Neuerdraht, they have to hide from the sun. They have to hide from, not, not the sun, I guess, but from the star, from Algol, which is the, the star that the planet is going around, uh, because of the large amount of ultraviolet. So there are no animals living on the planet, and each plant struggles to get beneath the other in order to hide from this radiation. So it's kind of an inversion of uh, what we think of of as the natural order of things on Earth. But all right, let's uh, let's talk about the ship stuff, and then we'll then we'll take a pause here. Uh, we learn a little bit about the org chart now. Uh, Johan is a lieutenant, and we meet the captain. We don't learn her name, but she is very much in charge. And when she arrives on the bridge from her ready room, she kicks Johan off the bridge because he is not on duty anymore. You don't just get to go to the bridge and hang out and uh, flirt with the crew and maybe, you know, compel them to come to your quarters later and have sex with you. If you're not on duty, you're not on the bridge. So she's very much in charge. And Wolf gives us a, a description of what the, the captain is wearing as well. And this in turn tells us about the ship. This tells us something about the, the setting. The uniform here is washable, non-woven shorts, and then on top, people are wearing a blouse of white Skylon, I guess because velour sweaters are an absolutely terrible idea. Uh, (laughs) Though I have to say that although velour sweaters are a terrible idea, I feel like it would be cold on a spaceship. So I don't really know about the shorts here, other than that this maybe is meant to conjure up uh, an image of 19th century Bavaria or or a 19th century Bavarian, that kind of, uh, I don't know, stereotypical image that we have of of someone celebrating Oktoberfest, right? That's what I've got in mind here. And I think it's what Wolf has in mind here as well. (laughs) But she is also wearing boots. She's wearing magnetic boots because there is no artificial gravity on this spaceship. And then finally, there's an interesting note about the captain's body. We're going to get a lot of notes about female bodies in this story. Uh, Here, what we learn is that she is a head taller than Johan and that she just absolutely towers over grit. And here's what Wolf writes about this. By a policy long enforced on Earth, highly placed women received additional nutritional coupons. Better food gave their offspring a commanding stature that tended to stabilize the social classes. So that's just one sentence, and there is a ton of world building loaded into that. You can see that Wolf is already working on ideas for both the Book of the New Sun and Book of the Long Sun, and maybe even Book of the Short Sun here. (laughs) He's working out some ideas that he spends thousands of pages exploring in his later writing career. In some ways, this novella, I think, is a real predecessor to Long Sun, maybe a very important one. Uh, But there's a lot to go over in this section without us needing to refer to Wolf's (laughs) later texts. And and, and let's just start with the captain. Wolf makes a move here by having the captain being called Sir, though she is a woman. And this is military lingo that carries over and is gender neutral. This is something we see in Battlestar Galactica, at least, if not uh, later iterations of Star Trek. Sir is what you'd call any superior officer. I think this is a great touch. I also like how Johan is just hanging around too much on the bridge, and he's there to sort of flirt with Grit, but he's also a little upset that he hasn't had the career that he wanted, uh, and he's jealous that he didn't get to go down to the planet, though he's been awake for the full 17 years. He has been on this voyage since the beginning. So we have a conflict within the character that is going to have to get resolved by the end of the story. Johan wants something. He wants to be a higher rank. He wants to go down to the planet. He wants to experience the things that he signed up for this mission for. 
Yeah, I need to zoom in on this use of the word sir here, this this address used to for men and how it's being used for a woman here, because this absolutely is something that appears in Star Trek. It certainly appears in Star Trek The Next Generation, and then a big deal is made of it in Star Trek Voyager as well, where in the pilot of that show, the, the writers have decided to do away with that, but they have to make a big deal of how that is the special prerogative of Captain Janeway, that she prefers to be called just Captain, or in a pinch, ma'am will do, is what she tells Harry Kim. And I grew up on Star Trek The Next Generation. I mean, it is the story of my adolescence, and so when I got into the real military here in our world, I assumed that you that that it was gender neutral and that you used sir for every officer. And uh, second or third week of basic training, I had to get sent off by myself to uh, go see a doctor about my, my hay fever or something. I had to get a, an allergy prescription uh, given to me and I needed to get picked up by somebody after that. And I was by myself and I was standing around outside and my very first ever female officer walked by a, a, a lieutenant, a full lieutenant, not a, not a, not a, not a second lieutenant, uh, walked by and I saluted and I called her sir. And uh, I don't think I've ever done so many pushups in my my life because <laughs> it turns out that it's not gender neutral. You call you call female officers ma'am in the American army. And uh, I will now never forget that. But that is how Star Trek led directly to me doing what felt like about a thousand pushups in, you know, 90 degree heat in Leonard Wood in, uh, in August. Yeah, that's hilarious. I mean, I only came across this in science fiction stories. So it was never like a uh, that's what the normal world is like. I don't, that's really, really funny. Uh, I want to talk here about the planet name and the star system it's a part of. You you said uh, Neuerdrat is a combination of German words meaning new, earth, and wire. It could also be a riff on a, a word, at least Neuerding, uh, meaning like recently or of late or something along those lines. So th there's a really complex word here. And... Uh, I don't know what wire has to do with new and earth. I'll be looking forward to dis discussing that in later episodes. But Algol is a real star in our galaxy, in the Milky Way galaxy. It it's also referred to as the demon star. Uh, Algol is from the Arabic Algol, which is a demon. And it's where we get the word ghoul from. And it's where uh, the great Batman character, uh, Ray Al Ghul, gets his <laughs> name from. Uh, but it's so named because Al Ghul, the, the star, and it's really a, a trinary star system, though for a long time it appeared to be binary. It's so named because it marks the star in Medusa's constellation, the old Greek constellation, where the beginning of uh, the severed head is. Uh, as I said, it's actually a collection of three stars, though I think for a long time one of them was hidden. And so the I don't know when it was discovered to be more than a binary star system. But even in this story, uh, Algol is a negative connotation. There's a sense of foreboding when its light falls on this planet. I mean, it was already kind of given a negative con connotation in our own history. Uh, it's thought of as uh, bad luck and bad fortune. So Wolf is doing an enormous amount of world building and leaning on our own history and understanding of our kind of galactic star system, uh, st star naming and star system. Algol is a little over 92 light years away, but there's kind of more uses of Algol in our cult culture. It's also the name of a computer programming language that's been around since the late 1950s. I don't think that that's a reference that Wolf is 
pulling on, though computers and computer advancement and computer programming is going to play a role in this story. So who knows? We're already jam-packed with references and allusions in this novella, <laughs> and we've barely gotten started. Uh, and there's also just one more thing I want to point out, which is that in Solaris, the planet that is being surveyed and explored is covered with a giant sentient ocean. It's a, it's a consciousness that can't be understood because it's a body of water. And on this planet, on Neuerdrat, uh Perhaps that has turned into a jungle. But as we get deeper in the story, we're going to discover that there is a sort of incomprehensible consciousness that is uh, alive that we're going to encounter. One of the really neat features about Algol, and, and I do think Wolf at this point is only aware of it as a, a, a binary star system, though I don't know when that third star was discovered. But the the two stars, at least, that made up the star that we would call Algol or the system that we would call Algol here in the in the 1970s was uh, the very bright star that is uh, Algol proper. I don't know, Algol 1, we could call it that. That's not actually what astronomers call it. And then the the, the beta. It's, uh, yeah, it's beta Persei, a 1, a 2, and a Right. So then, this the second one is uh, less bright. It, it's it, but it's bigger, but it's also significantly cooler. So there is a kind of a, a bright star and a dark star here, and they um, the, the dark star will frequently eclipse the the, the brighter star, uh, which is also how you know we have observed it. We see that kind of flickering. That's how we uh, have known for a very long time uh, that it was at the very least a binary system. But I think that this is an image that Wolf wants us to keep in mind here as well. The sort of partner of light and dark here, and this idea of uh, of the the, the two uh, or rather of the the bigger darker sun the star bigger darker star here eclipsing the other one uh wolf is really playing with this imagery in a story that's called silhouette yeah it's a crucial image and, and we talked about this a little bit before and we're gonna see this image come back time and again in this story the play of light and shadow and what is required to produce a shadow is simply something blocking light. So this is imagery that uh, we're really going to hammer home in, in a few episodes, but certainly something to keep in mind. Wolf is, is reminding of us, is reminding us of it an awful lot this early in the story. Well, speaking of lights, next scene, we are back in Johan's quarters where another light has gone out. This is a, a really short scene, but I really like it for giving us the sense of uh, a military man in his bunk after his shift. He's got four hours before Grit will arrive, and he, he thinks that he should go to the galley and get food, but he just doesn't feel like doing that. I think we've all been there before, but he doesn't get much time to himself here in his room either before a man named Emil comes in. This is the third time that Emil has been by looking for Johan today, but it's the first time that Johan has actually been here. And we get the clear impression that Johan would simply like Emil to leave. Uh, one word answers, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But Emil is chatty. And so we learned that recently, back on Earth, there's been some sort of war, and that when that war was over, Johan, and, and presumably everyone else here on this ship, volunteered for this exploration thing. And that's a quote. Exploration thing is what Emil says here. And we learned that Johan has ambitions, that he wanted to be a captain. Of course, that's not going to happen now. You can't really get promoted on a ship that people can't get transferred off of, right? Like, where's the captain going to go? So no one else is ever going to get promoted either. 
And Emil also talks about uh, his life on the ship a little bit. And as a lieutenant, Johan doesn't have a roommate, though before he was promoted, he did have a roommate. And Emil has two roommates now, and sometimes he thinks it would be nice to have his own room. But then mostly he just thinks that would be lonely. The other thing that we learn about the ship in this scene is that it isn't a saucer. It's not a space plane. It is made up of a number of constituent parts that can be reconfigured based on the, the needs of the ship, the, the needs that the, the captain uh, has for the mission. Uh, the ship is modular. And in this case, a recent reconfiguration has moved Emil's quarters closer to Johan's. Johan's clearly not excited about this fact. Uh, but what I really want to say is that if I recall correctly, we saw something similar to this with the ship in Alien Stones as well. Uh, And then the last thing here, which is that Emil asks Johan to call him Grit when they are in private together, though Johan says that he won't do that. I have been through this story four times now, and I am still not really sure what is going on here with Emil's desire to be called a, a, a different name and a feminine name at that. And even on top of that, the name of a character we have already met of a, another person on the ship. This is part of the technique of the story is that so much is in so much of the dialogue communicates way more by what's unspoken than what's spoken. Uh, And for me, I I don't know if this is that hard to figure out, though. It's strange maybe to find in a science fiction story. I think Wolf is maybe pointing out first that it's obvious to everybody that Johan has an open desire for grit. Uh, and that Emil recognizes that. Wolf may also be hinting that Emil is on the sex duty roster and that perhaps Johan and Emil have been together once. I don't know, but maybe they've had some sort of encounter. Uh, or it could just be that Emil desires Johan and is trying to, uh, in some ways, become Johan's object of desire. It's clear, though, that they have some sort of odd history that isn't on the page because it's not important to the story. But there's a whole background of information here, a whole history that is communicated to us by what is not said. And that is a key part, as I said, of the technique that Wolf is using in writing this story. And that there are a few hints to this being the case in the section and you just uh recapped for us glenn of uh like the desire and sex dynamic at play here emil is wearing cologne to visit johan emil calls johan's room so masculine as a compliment and another compliment emil gives to johan is he calls him betrothed of fortune which is kind of like a, a nickname Uh, And it might be kind of a cutesy nickname because it turns out, and again, I have to thank Mark Aramini and explicitly at this point, I want to plug his book on his books on Gene Wolfe between light and shadow. They are a must read. They are a must have reference for getting deep into Wolfe. But I want to point out here, as, as Mark Aramini points out, that the name Faust means fortunate one. So again, I'm, I'm not sure what we're doing with Faust in this story. Maybe it's just a cute nickname that Emil has for Johan. Maybe Johan's last name is Faust. Maybe he is explicitly Faust. But there's something odd going on with the sex duty roster and desire and Emil's femininity. Um, and, and I'm not going to go more into gender at this point because it's a major part of this story. And we'll have a lot more to talk about by the time we get to the discussion. 
Well, I think that's a fantastic explication of what is going on in this scene. And I, I guess I kind of had inferred that in, in some way. But by the end of the story, I was just left unclear about what ends up happening with this. There is a scene with Johan and a male doctor later as well that I think will be relevant for this. But in general, just here in this first section that we're, we're covering... I think my feeling at this point really was just a lot of discomfort at how much sex and sexual politics was going on on this ship. It's not generally something, well, it's not something I go to reading for uh, at all, or or TV or film for at all either. I'm a bit of a, a prude when it comes to that, I suppose. Uh, but it's also not something I was expecting in this wolf story. And it just took a long time for this to build towards something. I do think by the end, we see something at least of what's going on here. I'm looking forward to you helping me <laughs> figure it all out, actually, when we get to the discussion. <laughs> Maybe you already have, so you could just tell me what's what's going on with all of the, the sexual dynamics and sexual politics here on the ship. But really, I think my mode, certainly in this sort of first two chunks that we're going to be doing, these first two episodes, was really just discomfort. I think it's meant to cause discomfort, but I, I don't want to talk about that too much anymore because it is a rich topic for discussion. And there's more going on in this section, more kind of far future world building stuff uh, that, that Wolf is situating us within. Some serious war has ended. I'm going to suggest that this war is the war from the story of the Blue Mouse, but I, I don't know. We'll be able to talk about that later and maybe try to build a case for it as we continue on in our recaps. Um, but it, it, the war was so serious that it, it was a kind of war to end all wars in a major way because the only way for a person to advance, to continue to be an officer, was to join the Space Force here. And and that means that there may not be a use for armies anymore, that they that there has been either a mega catastrophe on Earth, as as will be suggested to us, though that will be suggested to us through the voice of somebody who's unreliable. But it is hinted at that there may not be a need for armies because you can't advance in the army anymore or any military system, though this ship is clearly using a, a naval rank system. Also, the captain is letting us know that coffee is now called calf and cigarettes are called zigs. Uh, this is just some slang that Wolf throws in here to let us know we're, we're not in Kansas anymore. This stuff is fine. It's not my. It's not why I go to science fiction to get like new words for coffee. Uh, but calf is caught on in the speculative fiction world. I think it's used kind of pretty heavily in the Wheel of Time books. Uh, so zigs. I don't know. It's just. It's just some whiz bang fun. Stuff. <laughs> well, I will say in Wolf's defense here, though, this is a thing that usually annoys me as well. He's also cluing us in that these people are speaking German uh, because th these slang words would not actually come from English. These would come from German. We get the K and the Z spelling here. Uh, the thing that you're pointing to about the connection between this story and the Blue Mouse, which we actually talked about in the Blue Mouse, so we can go ahead and spoil it now, even though I don't think we get to it uh, until, I don't know, maybe the third or fourth section we've got mapped out here is this bit of technology called the, the voice right, which uh, also... So uh, at the time we were doing the Blue Mouse, I thought was actually uh, Dutch, was like a, a Dutch uh, word for uh, writing something with your, your your voice based on the spelling. But I think Wolf had in mind uh, German at that time as well. And obviously, right, if we're thinking that this is a Faust story, that's why Wolf has made all of this German. But I will be real interested in doing a bit of uh, Death of the Author and trying to ditch that idea when we want to come when we come to understanding the history of this world and figuring out why uh, do the the seeming victors of this war to end all wars uh, in the future why are they German how did how did that happen uh, that'll be a lot of fun to do 
It certainly will. And I and I just want to point here. I just want to point out one more thing that I think you're right to to that you know Wolf the engineer is thinking that for a ship to run on mas- maximum efficiency needs to have some sort of way of rearranging itself. And I believe we're going to I believe in a section that we're going to talk about in a little while in a couple episodes uh goes into depth. It's Wolf kind of explaining why he thinks this is the case that the ship needs to imitate how life functions on some level. Um but this is important in this part of the story because we're now asking questions of what system is it that controls these sorts of efficiency? Who is making these decisions about ship rearrangements and efficiencies? Well, all right, let's carry on. So next scene, uh, Johan falls asleep for a little while. And when he awakes, there, there's only one light working in the wall now. He runs some errands. Uh, one of them is going to be food. But first, he needs a new book to read. And for this, he has to go to the part of the ship where the enlisted quarters are kept. And Wolf gives us an awesome description of this area, which naturally is very crowded compared to the officer's area. And because we're in space and there's no gravity, but there are magnetic boots, people use all three sides of the corridors to, to walk on. There's no designated floor. Any surface can be a floor. But also, right, I guess we learned that the, the corridors are triangular. Uh, that's interesting, though that might actually have to do with the, the modularity, right? fitting uh, angles of a of triangle together might actually be easier from an engineering perspective than fitting flat surfaces uh, together, or flat uh, uh, rectangular surfaces together. But, but uh, as Brandon has said, neither of us is an engineer, let alone a space engineer. So who knows? <laughs> but what really matters here is that there is a public space that used to be the ship's library, but is now the place where the book swap game is played. And that is what Johan is here for. And the deal is this. It's very much like rock, paper, scissors, except with books. Uh, You take a book in each hand, but you keep them under the table. On the count of three, you put your hands on the table, but only revealing the book in your right hand. Uh, And by the way, these are not real books. They're they're digital books on something like a flash drive. That's why you can hide one in in your fist. Uh, At this point, then, the, the designated player has a number of options, which include buying the opponent's visible book with both of his books. Uh, And then there's something called crossing, which is to swap the two hidden books sight unseen. Uh, These are the only two things that we actually see happen in the game, but there must be be more options than this. And this game seems really awesome to me. It also seems exactly like the sort of thing that military people get up to on deployment. And I I have to wonder if we're going to encounter something like this in in Letters Home at some point. So we we do get a lot of detail in this game. And in a minute or two, I'm going to let Brandon go through the books that Wolf mentions here. We we know that that's always an important, but also always a fun thing to unpack. But I do want to call attention to the fact that we learned that at some point in the story's past and and, and our future, I guess, uh, there was a series of Afro-Brazilian wars uh, that you can now read books about. But all right. So armed now with a new book, Johan heads to the galley to get something to eat before Grit comes over. In the galley, we learn a lot more about the functioning of the ship, which uh, which I just love. I love all of these details. I could read this sort of thing all day. The food that they eat comes from culture vats, and the chief cook is is busy chopping tissue from one of them, which uh, that sounds gross. I don't know if I'd want to live on this ship. Actually, I do know. I would. Uh, we also learn that members of the crew are cryogenically frozen, and uh, there seem to be spare crew members kept in that state. And we know this because we meet Gretchen. This is the, the new girl whom Grit had tried to get Johan interested in instead of her. And she really is new. She's only been awake for six weeks. Uh, she also says that the person she replaced 
killed herself. Apparently, a lot of the undercooks end up killing themselves. So this ship is definitely not the, the Enterprise. This does not seem to be a happy place. No, certainly it does not seem to be a happy place. And, I, and I'm going to talk about those books that Johan wins in, in a moment or barters for or trades for. But Wolf is doing more spaceship imagining in this section as well, as you, as you just got done pointing out. People drink recycled urine and bathwater in order to keep water consumption to a decent level. Uh, you pointed out that the corridors of the ship are triangular and people walk on all three hallways because gravity is based on where they plant their feet with their gravity sandals on rather than being as being pulled in a distinct direction with some kind of centrifugal force. And there's a further sense here, and this is really important, of things breaking down on the ship. The ventilation system isn't able to keep the smells of other people and what they produce uh, out. It's not able to make the air smell clean, which seems like this would be something fairly easy to do i suppose though maybe not if we're dealing with a lot of recycled air there are jealousies and squabbles among the lower ranked crew and even we'll see that bleed into the higher ranking crew members as well not to mention that suicide is commonplace and this is all part of that technique of normalizing johan does not react johan our point of view character the person whose head we're in does not react as though anything is strange about any of this. He reacts as though it's normal. Nothing is throwing him into some uh, place of emotional contemplation or emotional turmoil that we really are grabbing onto as readers. So Wolf is just keeping us right on the surface. And even the way Gretchen says that, you know, a lot of people kill themselves, it doesn't even strike her as strange, though she's only been awake for six weeks. So this whole ship is dysfunctional on a lot of levels. I mean, if you have to keep people on reserve so that you can replace people who weren't cut out for the mission of the ship, whatever that is, you've started with a misstep. Uh, so there's just a lot of rot that Wolf is hiding in plain sight that I think it's easy to ignore as a reader because he doesn't draw any attention to it. And, and we've talked about this. We'll probably bring it up more as the story goes on. One of the things we're also going to see is some tension between people who've been awake the whole time, like Johan, and people who haven't. And Wolf doesn't always spell out. In fact, he almost never spells out to us who is older and who is younger, at least not explicitly. He doesn't narrate that. But we are going to see all sorts of tensions uh, throughout the story once we start meeting some of the, the other characters. I do also want to thank you, Brandon, for pointing out that although I have been insisting on calling these things magnetic boots, uh, Wolf is clear that they are sandals, uh, which is comical, uh, of course, but is also going to become relevant to the plot uh, later, uh, but also, of course, thinking from uh, an actual design perspective, uh, boots are very difficult to get on and off. But actually, if you're in an environment like this, you want to be able to slip in and out of your gravity devices uh, as quickly as possible for safety and also to do work and so on. And so Wolf has really thought very much about the about the footwear. But I just I don't know. I don't know why I've insisted on calling them boots instead of sandals, but I'll, I'll do better. <laughs> Because it's because graph sandals is really dumb to say. <laughs> That's so, fair. Yeah, <laughs> graph boots sound so much cooler. Uh, there, there's also a bit of gender play as well here, and and this is Wolf, uh, whether purposefully or not, engaging with a writer trope or maybe a pattern of a lot of writers, 
which is to describe women in terms of their bodies and men in terms of their minds. This kind of writing is rife in this story. So here's the first example we really get, uh, the, the first obvious example. Wolf describes Gretchen only with regard to her bust-to-hip ratio. And I guess we're either seeing this through Johan's eyes, who's glad to see a new girl awake, or is trying to imagine her as being attractive because Grit wants him to think so. Or, as I said, this is just the convention for a lot of the way men and women both write about men and women uh, who aren't main characters in the story. It's shorthand. And, uh, you know, we will be talking about gender dynamic in the story, not only because, you know, it's been so much on the page, but also it's something Wolf brings up in the introduction to this collection uh, that I'll read when we get to the discussion. But I also have to point out here, once again, Gretchen is the name of Faust's love interest in Goethe's Faust. A lot going on here. But now we can get to the books that these fellows are playing for and trading. Uh, the first is the Dore New Testament. And this is a copy of the New Testament that was illustrated by Gustav Dore. These were painted in the 1860s. Uh, they're magnificent illustrations. Um, and it, this is a book that Johann ends up getting. Next is a book called The Eighth Day. It's one of Johann's books. Uh, it's a book written by Thornton Wilder. It came out in 1967. Ostensibly, it's a murder mystery. It's also a kind of saga about two families in a mining town, uh, about growth and decay and uh, the decline of mining. Just a lot of different sort of things cut up there. Uh, next up is Seven Gothic Tales by Isaac Dinesen, also uh, a nom de plume for Karen Blixen, who is really well known for the memoir Out of Africa. Also, Seven Gothic Tales was a major hit in the 1920s. It got her invited into all sorts of you know literary circles, meeting Ernest Hemingway and and other uh, big male writers. Obviously, she chose the name Isaac Dennison so that her gender wouldn't be counted against her as a writer. But these are gothic tales. They are strange and weird murder aristocracy and decay, decaying estates, monkeys, all the great stuff you find in <laughs> gothic stories. Uh, and then the final one we get in this section is The Wild Knight, which is a poetry collection from G.K. Chesterton. This collection, as well as the Dore New Testament, are the books that Johann ends up walking away with after trading the book on Afro-Brazilian Wars and Seven Gothic Tales. So he trades those two books, and he gets these two... Uh, Christian text, basically. This Chesterton book, The Wild Knight, is one of the first things uh, Chesterton became known for, a poetry collection. And the story New Testament is, well, it's the Christian New Testament. So this is a kind of elevated reading material, or at least more edifying reading material than what Johann had before. Uh, and, and one other thing I want to point out here is that Johann actually reads the books that he gets in this game, where other people are just playing book trading the game and have no use for the contents of what they receive. So we can assume that Johann is going to read both of these 
though we see him reading the wild tonight uh, explicitly. Yeah, I'm really interested in why you would play this game if you're not interested in reading the books, right? Like, what are you going to go do with these uh, these PDFs on a flash drive if it's not read them? Are they some kind of currency on the ship for something else where, yeah, this this Duray New Testament is, I don't know, worth a lot of zigs or something, right? If you can, if you can get your hands on one, we don't ever see that happening. We're never going to see that happening in this story, unfortunately, though I would read someone's fan fiction about that. I don't know. Maybe that is what Battlestar Galactica is. I guess it's exactly that. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's a whole black market trade and system on this ship that we are only given the mildest glimpses of. So who knows if books have some sort of currency in another black market that is taking place on the ship. And I'm really glad that you walked us through what these books are. And you did a great job of explicating this. When we get to the end, we're going to have to talk about this swap here, this this trade that Johan makes as being highly symbolic, right? There's no way that Wolf has done this casually. It has to be symbolic about something. So once we know what the whole story is, uh, it will be a lot of fun to see if we can read anything into this here. But I will point out before we do that, I'll point out right here that we are in a gothic tale, right? If we're thinking about gothic stories as being about uh, decay and about the uh, decline of the decline of resources, the decline of wealth, and also the decline, the deterioration maybe of human relationships and people being compelled then to uh, horrible things. Uh, that's exactly what we've got here. This story is a, a space gothic, if space if space gothic is a thing. And if it's not, it definitely should be. And this is a prime example of it. So it is interesting that that's the book that he he gives away here. That's a really great point. I had not thought about this book as being a gothic tale, but it so clearly is. It is full of the moral decay uh, and the symbolic and the way that's symbolized by the material decay of the world around it uh, that is prevalent in gothic tales and people getting up in people getting into horrible situations to maintain a failing status quo. Uh, It's just what this story is about on one level. Right. And it's got all the atmosphere of it as well, right? The lights don't work. There are rats in the halls. You know, there's more to Gothic than that, but you know, (laughs) that's a big part of it anyway. (laughs) Well, all right. When Johan gets back to his quarters, there is a report from maintenance there letting him know that they've been by and they didn't find anything wrong with the lights. Of course, Johan can see quite clearly that there is only one light working in one wall, so something is definitely wrong. On the opposite wall, Johan's shadow, twice the size of Johan himself, faces him enigmatically. Uh, This line is a tease, of course, right? Given that the name of the story is Silhouette. But more on that later. Right now, (laughs) Johan is going to read his new book of G.K. Chesterton poetry, which uh, he puts into a dedicated e-reader that shows him the text, uh, but also can illustrate the text as he reads. So he sees a a warrior full of anger and restrained power standing atop a megalith. Uh, This is the wild night of the book's title. And we get two stanzas here, which I'm I'm just going to read because I don't think people are reading enough G.K. Chesterton poetry in the microphones in the world. And this is a service that we can provide uh, for the world here. My eyes are full of lonely mirth, reeling with want and worn with scars. For pride of every stone on earth, I shake my spear at all the stars. A live bat beats my crest above, lean foxes knows where I have trod, and on my naked face the love, which is the loneliness of God. And while he is reading, Johann suddenly hears a whispering in the room, and for an instant the ice foam wall with its single light seems very far away, almost as if it's down a tunnel in space, and it throbs like a heart. And then someone is calling his name. 
It's grit, and she's just entered his quarters to find Johan floating up in a corner, passed out. And she thinks that he's using some sort of drug, but he insists that he isn't, that he must have just fallen asleep, though he also doesn't feel well. He's dizzy, he's disoriented. And Grit now refuses to have sex with him, but Johan says that she has to, but she knows the rules. And I think we should just read this speech because this whole situation with appointment books for compulsory sex on the ship is, it's, well, it's, it's weird as we've been saying for an hour already. Uh, so let's just uh, read this. Here's what Grit says when Johan insists that she has to have sex with him. Not if there's a reason to suspect contagion. Read the regulations, Lieutenant. Any woman can refuse when there is legitimate reason to suspect the existence of infectious disease, until the man has been certified in good health by a medic. I came in here, and you were floating around unconscious, and you say you haven't been taking anything. So, you've got some disease, and who knows what it is. So, good for her, I say, though Though Johan still tries to talk her into it, saying that she'll just have to come back once he's cleared, so they may as well have sex now. But she has won this round, and she leaves. But now I think we we do know, right? We can see clearly in this scene that the whole thing here, this whole business is regulated. And that although this does bother me to my core, this is normal and lawful for the people in this story. And, and maybe not even just this ship. This might be something that's going on back home on Earth, too. Uh, we're going to have you know, to talk about that in the discussion episode as well when we do get around to talking about all of the, the gender dynamics, the gender politics at play here. Right. I mean, the, the evidence was there that this was all regulated. And, and we pointed it out a little bit before, but this makes it explicit. Officers are allowed to require people on the ship to sleep with them. It's just unsavory, and I'm not sure what type of you know social engineering component Wolf thinks he is solving by designing the social structure this way for the ship. I think we're meant to feel discomfort by the normalcy of it, and I don't think Wolf is advocating for this on any level, but I think it also should maybe function to, on a long journey, keep people from becoming jealous or engaging in sort of romantic spats, you know, gothicism being the dark side of romanticism, this sort of being willing to die for a lover. If all of this stuff is flattened out and people can just uh, c- compel others to have sex with them by having a a duty log and it's part of the duty of being on the ship it's what you know when you sign up for maybe he's thinking uh, by designing a system like this you're averting those romantic love problems uh, that can take place Uh, I don't know that could be the case it'll be something worth talking about for sure I I do want to say though that with regard to the poem um the lines that we get are taken from the second poem of the collection, The Wild Knight. It's called The World's Lover. This is a crucifixion poem, uh, but the computer seems to believe that it's a poem about a warrior on his way to some kind of execute, some noble execution. Uh, some of that imagery is certainly in the poem, but it's also The World's Lover is Christ here. It's full of Christ imagery and uh, the condemnation for loving the world in in a way that led to crucifixion, that is in a way that did not please the authorities and the status quo. So the computer is generating these images based on the lines it's getting, uh, but it doesn't have the proper context. And one more thing I want to point out here. The characters are referring to drug use pretty casually. Grit is saying, like, I actually don't care if you're my superior officer and you are openly using drugs. Uh, you know, I I get it. I, everybody does it. It's not a big deal. Uh, I knew a guy who lost his security 
clearance and basic training for <laughs> saying, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't regret using drugs. Everybody does them. It's not a big deal. That's the wrong answer to that softball question if you're ever <laughs> interviewing for a security clearance. But uh, another hint, it's it's all of this is just another hint that the social structure of this ship has really deteriorated. There are no moral norms that are taking place on this ship that we can relate to uh, in, in the mode that our civilization operates today. And this really interests me also because of our episode 100, the interview we did with Nathan Carson. Uh, he pointed out something that I had not really glommed onto reading a lot of Wolf, which is Wolf talks a lot about psychedelic drug use. And we're going to see some of that take place in this story later on. And all of this was a really hot topic in people thinking about space, right? At the time that Wolf was writing this story, we, we just went to the moon five years ago, right? This is new, but it, it's also exciting, right? It feels like we've done it. We got to another body in space. So now there's no stopping us. We're going to go to Mars. We're going to send people out to uh, Jovian moons. And and who knows where we're going to be able to go from there. But of course, there are technical problems that have to be solved. A lot of them are engineering and Wolf is exploring that here. But also a lot of them are psychological uh, and, and social, right? A lot of them are about what is it going to be like for people to be on a spaceship uh, for that amount of time? How are you going to solve the problems of isolation and uh, lack of uh, proper nutrition and lack of light and just general cabin fever as well, right? How are you going to solve those problems? And people had a lot of uh, of ideas. I was about to say crazy ideas, but some of them were maybe crazy wild ideas. And Sex was a huge part of of this dynamic, right? People were proposing that you should send married couples uh, or that you should send uh, only single people of one gender or you should send single people of uh, or non-married people anyway of an equal uh, equal gender balance and all sorts of things that this was a hot topic for people who were interested in space exploration at the time that Wolf was writing this story. So uh, we'll do more with that when we get to the discussion episode. But I think the drug use is wrapped up in that as well, right? That this is people needing something yeah, that they're they're not getting here on the spaceship, right? That they're missing something from being back on Earth somehow, and they are turning to other things to escape the, the misery. And, and not just the drugs, of course, right? But we've already been told that suicide is something of a problem on the ship as well. Right. It really mirrors the kind of, I don't know, so-called tenets of the youth counterculture movement uh, that was maybe in decline, by this time, but it was certainly something Wolf was investigating was like, let's take some of these counterculture movements to their logical extreme. We can recognize, for instance, that they're all just kids at this point. But what happens if we abolish sexual norms? What happens if drug use becomes norms, becomes the norm? And we're taking these tenets of the counterculture and then using them to investigate how do people survive in unbearable situations? Were the youth living in unbearable situations and that's why things exploded like this? What are the outlets? What are the psychological outlets and coping mechanisms that people use to escape situations that they maybe thought they wanted to be in at one point but are now too stuck in to get out of? 
Well, as you say, we are going to get more about that as the story goes on. And I think this will be a a broad topic of discussion in our our final episode here on Silhouette. Uh, But speaking of final, we are very close to the end of what we're going to cover here today. But there is just a little bit more to this scene to do before uh, before we go. Uh, I mean, it it doesn't really take much space here, this scene, but it is really significant. And so we will make this our last chunk of text for this episode When Johan is left alone, he feels terrible. He's dizzy and something is wrong with his shadow. Really, it's his eyes, right? But it manifests as a shadow that is blacker than black. And oh, if only there were a good word for something that is blacker than black. I I don't know if we'll ever encounter that ever in our our reading. Uh, Well, Johan closes his eyes and then someone whispers again. When he opens his eyes, no one is there. And he even gets up and he checks, but still no one. He calls out, who's there? I know someone's in here. Where are you? Nothing. He lies down and closes his eyes again, and now there is the soft sound of air-blown sand, dry and insistent, and the scuttling of a small animal. And now someone whispers, friend? And Johan, his eyes still closed, says yes in answer. So things just got really creepy really fast, and uh, I think this is a great cliffhanger of an ending to uh, our episode today. Uh, yeah, it really is. I mean, something's going on with Johan, though we have no idea what it could be. He believes he's been poisoned by one of the kitchen staff, and that could be the case because we get no real proof of anything otherwise, and drugs are plentiful on the ship. There's also the troubling growth of the shadow and its darkness. And because this story is told to us in the third person, we maybe have to believe that this is an objective report, but at the end of the but at the end of the day, we just have no idea what's going on with Johan. And Wolf, as ever, doesn't want to fill us in just yet. No, and of course, it is going to be a while before we get filled in. And getting filled in is a term that we use loosely here on this show. But this is, <laughs> I, I love this story so far. This is a, a crazy setup, a crazy setting. It's a wild premise and a, and a wild ride. So I'm excited to carry on. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you stop by the website to check us out, don't forget to check out Glenn's new podcast, Atas. It's great. They're great short episodes. It'll introduce you to a lot of books that maybe have been on your list for a long time. Yeah, I would be really grateful if you would uh, give that show a listen. And uh, and if you do start listening to that show, I hope that you'll come talk with me about those books. That's really the book club part in the title of ATAS, a speculative fiction book club podcast. I'm hoping those uh, short episodes, I mean, literally an hour shorter than this episode that we've done here uh, today are really meant to be conversation starters. But of course, we always hope these episodes are conversation starters as well. And so we do hope that you'll drop by the forum or our subreddit, the Clay Temple Media subreddit, Reddit and uh, talk with us about what we have covered here today. What are your impressions of this first chunk of Silhouette? Next time, we're going to be back with part two of our recap, and that will cover up to page 472. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.